The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring you disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. This is episode number 35. Tonight's special guest is someone who can talk about so many subjects. He's one of the most prolific researchers and journalists in the UFO and exopolitics scene today. He's co-editor of UFO Digest and president of Morningstar Aerospace Resources and Systems. Robert Morningstar, not to be confused with Robert Morningsky, will be with us shortly. I want to thank all of our new Veritas members. You are keeping Veritas alive. And as a reminder to those of you thinking of joining, not only do you get access to all our past shows, but you also get full access to the Manticore Forum. The Veritas Show is syndicated by the following affiliates, K-Rock's Zero Point Radio, the Black Vault Radio Network, and the Paranormal Radio Network, 105.8 FM, New Orleans. If you need to get in touch with me, with questions or feedback, send me an email to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com or stop by the Manticore Forum and join the discussion. As I told you before, some of you have asked uh, to download a specific show without having to become a member. 
I have implemented an a la carte system where you can buy individual shows. Once again, you get a significant discount by becoming a member and have access to all our past shows and access to the Manticore forum. Nonetheless, the a la carte system is now in place. Also, coming soon, the Veritas shop. We'll start with t-shirts and then we'll continue adding more merchandise. And for the most current news and updates on our upcoming guests, visit our website, veritasshow.com. And now, get ready to spend two hours with one of the most prolific researchers in the UFO field. If you want to know, if our moon has a moon, what's on the moons of Mars? More about President Kennedy's assassination and his son, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s sinister and untimely death. And much more. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. David Sarita, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Robert Morningstar is one of the most prolific researchers and journalists in the UFO and exopolitics scene today. He is co-editor of UFO Digest and president of Morningstar Aerospace Resource and Systems. Robert is a computer systems and imaging specialist living in New York City. During the 1960 campaign, he worked as a volunteer for the election of John F. Kennedy in New York City. He is a graduate of Power Memorial Academy with a degree in psychology from Fordham University. Robert is an acknowledged Tai Chi master and has taught for the East Asian Studies Department of Oberlin College and as an adjunct lecturer at Hunter College, City University of New York. He was a movement therapist in the Behavioral Sciences Department at the International Center for the Disabled, teaching in stress management and behavioral modification programs in New York City. Morningstar is also an FAA licensed pilot, an instrument ground instructor. He is a member of the U.S. Naval Institute, the Air Force Association, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, and the Air Safety Foundation. His biography is listed in Who's Who in the East. Robert has studied the assassination of John F. Kennedy since the day it occurred. In 1992, at the Third Decade Symposium on the JFK assassination in Chicago, Robert became the first scientist to expose publicly the use of Gestalt psychology in the alteration and doctoring of the Sapruder film. In June 1997, Robert was elected presider of the ancient Druid Order of England in a Druid ceremony at Stonehenge, directly linking him spiritually to the Arthurian legacy. And directly from New York City, Robert Morningstar. Hello, Robert, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's a pleasure having you on. Before we start, let me say this. Robert Morningstar should not be confused with another great guest we've had on, Robert Morningsky. Robert, what is your relationship with Robert Morningsky? Well, I uh, kinship of spirits, I would say, because uh, we have never met. 
but we seem to have walked parallel paths in life and have uh, similar backgrounds and affinities, associations like the Native American tradition and um, common interest in uh, the JFK assassination, UFOs, and what's really going on in this planet spiritually. That's that's what I would say. We have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I believe in the concept of uh, oversouls, and that uh, s- several people can share a common bond in spirit, which I call the oversoul. And he may be one of those people for me <laughs> on this planet. People have confused us for 30 years, and uh, it took me a while to realize that people weren't spelling my name wrong when I was getting <laughs> cards for Robert Morning Sky uh, in the early uh, late 70s, early 80s it started. Then I heard about him in the 90s, and I said, oh, it really is a morning sky. So I've made a lot of friends uh, on the Internet, uh, people writing to uh, help find him. So I've uh, I've done that for a long time. And I was very happy to hear him on your show. It was very gratifying. Even even if you go to YouTube and you put Robert Morning Star, mm-hmm. you get Robert Morning Sky, sky lecture sometimes. I know, I know. I've seen that. I ask people to correct those things when when I catch them myself. But uh, I think both of us bring a positive message, and uh, both of us have our ground in, um, you know, Native American spiritual beliefs. And uh, so I'm I'm very gratified to see him come back into the uh, public arena, public eye. I read somewhere that you felt relieved when Robert Morningsky was on our show because he finally resurfaced after 10 years. And let me just say hello to Robert Morningsky also and and thank him again uh, for choosing us after his 10-year self-imposed public retreat. But you also received a lot of correspondence, a lot of mail that uh, was supposed to be going to him. What happened with that mail? Well, most of it was postcards and... um you know, uh, thank you notes, mostly in postcard forms. So I kept them for a while thinking they were mine, and then I just uh, discarded them. <laughs> nothing of, well, I mean, nothing of great uh, you know, monetary value ever showed up, you know, like a check or anything like that. No, just thank you right. notes generally. But actually, the, the, the Internet period, the Internet era, changed all that and became electronic communication with many people concerned uh, whether I was he or I knew of his whereabouts and a lot of stories and rumors about accidents and having to uh, remove himself from ufology because of threats. So it was a great uh, legend that grew around it and I was always trying to help people because seriously people were greatly concerned about him uh, would write to me and I tried to find out for a long time. So when he appeared on your show. I was really surprised and very happy to know that he was well enough to speak on radio and be back in uh, in the mainstream, I would call it. In the public and let me eye. say this, that in the uh, future, if it's okay with you and if it's okay with Robert Morningsky, I'd like to do a segment with the both of you. That would be very interesting to me. Very interesting. Tell me more about you, Robert. What? Uh, give us some background. Who's Robert? What changed your life uh, that made you look into ufology? You were the editor of UFO Digest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also uh, were a volunteer for the JFK campaign back in 1960. Give us more background. Yeah, basically, I'm um, a New York City kid. You know, I grew up in New York City. I was born in Nicaragua, 
and spent two years there. Came here in the 1950s and lived in New Orleans, Tampa, and New York. And I've lived in New York for 56 years now. Um, I was schooled here at uh, some of the finest schools in the country, prep schools. Uh, I went to Power Memorial Academy, which is still a legend in basketball because it's where Kareem uh, Jabbar, Jabbar yeah, right. uh, went to school when he was Lou Alcindor. Then I went to Fordham University, and I got a degree in psychology there, and that's where I became involved in some of the uh, advanced, more advanced experiments in artificial intelligence in uh, 1969 as a uh, research associate in uh, research that was being conducted at Fordham University. And I studied uh, Gestalt psychology, and then uh, I carved out my own career in uh, development of psychic skills, remote viewing. Parapsychology was basically my chosen field. But um, things were very limited in the 60s in in, uh, developing that through academia. So I chose my own path, and I ventured into Oriental affairs and Chinese martial arts and Kung Fu. And I uh, was basically adopted by... uh, Tai Chi masters who trained me in the oldest form of Tai Chi Chuan called Yang style Tai Chi Chuan, which I used as my personal vehicle, as the center of my uh, being, to embark on other projects, uh, investigations, research, dedicating myself to the development of mind, body, and spirit. So um, from there I went into computers and aviation became a pilot in the 1980s, and I've had a working uh, relationship with many uh, scientists, researchers, investigators. I consider myself a facilitator of communications. Uh, Incidentally, at my time at Fordham was a really seminal time, uh, great ferment, intellectual ferment that was occurring, and at Fordham, during that period where the first communication department was developed uh, under the directorship of Marshall McLuhan. So that, um, that milieu, that atmosphere, environment, kind of um, colored the rest of my life into what success is, and that's communications. And psychology is equally important for understanding yourself, your perceptions of reality, and um, basically human evolution, which is what we're here to do. We're here to evolve as human beings and become who we really are. Unfortunately, um, our minds have been um, affected by kind of a scheme in media that uh, presents falsehoods as realities, and so... There's a great confusion in people into, as to where the world really stands and what reality really is, and UFOs are part of that. It's become a core element of um, Western consciousness, and we all have to take it seriously. My own, my own background in it is that uh, I've been involved with people who were abducted as early as 1962. That's when I first... Uh, became aware of the phenomenon. 
Uh, I grew up in the 1950s in the in the in the age of flying saucers, as, as right. uh, Paris Flamand calls it, dubbing it an epic in human history. So Paris Flamand is a very famous writer of the 50s, 60s, and even now. And he wrote. So what happened in 1962 when you first okay. came in contact? Yeah, the first contact came through my younger brother who was uh, abducted in 1962. At that time, he didn't see a UFO. He just had this unusual experience of very small entities coming into his room and carrying him away against his will. And it affected him for the rest of his life. You know, there is a sense of, of um, well, outrage in certain certain individuals, uh, you know, different people react to it differently. But um, it's kind of like child abuse to have done that to a seven-year-old boy, you know? Yes. And I was, I was the first one to receive the report, you know, because uh, he was very altered. He had gone away to the country in one of those uh, city kid in the country for the summer programs run by organizations like uh, philanthropy charities or newspapers like the New York Times Fresh Air Fund. Right. So he was uh, he was going to the country. He was happy to be going. And then two weeks later, he was crying to come home, and we couldn't understand what had happened to him. And I took him aside one day and I said, uh, "Rudy, what happened? Uh, you know, you were so happy to go. What happened?" And he looked at his older brother and he said, "Robert, I was scared." I said, "What?" He says, "I was scared. Something happened. Something frightened me." And then he went on to tell me about sleeping on a ground-level ground room in this farmer's house with a door that opened back into a garden, backyard. And having gone, getting ready to go to sleep, he started hearing little voices. So he got curious and he walked over to the window and pulled up the shade and he didn't see anything in the garden. He went back to bed and then he heard the voices again. And then he says to me, he said to me that he was really certain now that he was hearing these things, and so he tiptoed up to the window again, very quietly, stealthily, drew the shade, and there surprised three little entities. He called them as these three little guys, like munchkins or something, he said. Right. And those are his very words. This is a seven-year-old boy trying to express something three and a half feet tall. With, and he said they had big eyes. And they got scared, and they hid in the flower bed, and they looked at me, and they, all, and they said to me, you don't see us, we're not here, we're only flowers. You don't see us, we're not here, we're only flowers. And they said it three times. And he got really frightened, ran back to bed, and then had an episode of missing time, but felt himself having, you know, been carried away, taken away, the door was open in the morning, he felt... Uh, terrible he felt cold and it took many years for him to recover the full extent the full memories and that was in the 1990s when a series of questions and recollections that i had about the incident were able to bring them back so one of the things that i do is i work with people who have been abducted to help them reconstitute their lives uh, recenter themselves integrate the experience and uh what method do you use to accomplish that? Well, that's where the Tai Chi comes in. Tai Chi Chuan is a method of recomposing yourself physically. Say the Tai Chi 
believes that the mind and the body, the spirit are one thing. And that if your mind is uncentered, your body is uncentered. And so if you work on centering the body, you will center the mind. As opposed to dealing with problems in terms of complexes and neuroses and trying to work them out uh, neurolinguistically or verbally, for example, in Freudian counseling. Right? You talk about your dreams and you describe your emotions and you work in, in, in a neurolinguistic manner. But the fact is that our life experience affects every molecule, every atom, every cell in our bodies. And your thought disseminates itself through your body, your emotions do as well, and that they have effects on the centeredness or uncenteredness of your physical being. So by working mechanically with the corpus, with the body, I'm able to help first myself, because we all have to center ourselves. It's a great method for doing it. But I help other people find correct alignment, good posture, correct body mechanics, which in a sense is returning to the original body language of mankind, which would be what I call Adam's walk, the perfectly correct way to use the body mechanically, you know, studying its structure, the skeleton, the alignment of the bones, the uh, articulation of the joints, the range of motion, uh, economy of movement, efficiency, harnessing gravity as your locomotive force. All of these things have effects both that are physical and mental and spiritual. So in abduction case, cases, there are, is something that I dubbed the somatic imprint. Okay. An abductee may be abducted and the memory erased and screen memory is superimposed through various forms of alien mind control, which we also, you know, we... America, the government, uh, has also understood and mastered, and now they're using, a, you know, <laughs> basically in advertising it as well. Right. But uh, to the, get to the point, the experience alters the person physically as well as mentally and emotionally. And it's this physical thing that usually works to bring the memory back if the screen memory or the imposed amnesia has been used. And there is a sense in the body of having been altered, having been violated, uh, basically what Freud would call a neurosis. And it has a basis in fact, but the fact is being denied by general science and psychiatry. So if you go and tell the psychiatrist about your experiences, obviously he'll say his paradigm, oh, this person's hallucinating, I've got to get this kind of drug, bring them under control, they need therapy. But that may not be the case. May the case may be this person has been violated by, by entities of which we have but a dim understanding and a great denial of their various existence. So the somatic imprint is what I deal with using Tai Chi and yoga, Qigong as it's called in China. And through this method, the complexes, what I call issues in the tissues, are gradually released with the person working, cooperating in, in the unfolding of the, what we call the form, which is the form of Adam, the original uh, blueprint for the human body and its use, correct use. And you were just uh, teaching Tai Chi just before we started the interview today. Yes, I try to do it 
uh, every day. You know, there is Tai Chi is a way of life. You see, it's not just something you do once. You know, you you do it. You go to classes. You learn once a week or twice a week, whatever the program is. Then you go home and either you practice or you don't. But when you practice it, something starts to happen. You start to feel more, quote unquote, natural. We all think we're natural, but we're not. You start to move naturally. There's a change in your sensations and your perception of yourself and your sense of well-being, and there, this becomes a kind of a, a feedback loop. That the more you do it, the better you feel, mm-hmm. the more economical you are in in your use, of, not just of your own energy, but of time itself. You learn to manipulate time to make things possible by not wasting it. Um, so this starts to alter the person's sense of well-being. And by establishing a positive sense of well-being, you facilitate the return to center. You know, people often uh, lose balance after um, abduction. And this can come from many things besides, you know, the violation, personal violation of being abducted. Exposure to a spacecraft of that technology. Um, there are various forms of... Uh, injurious uh, radiation that emanate from these things, uh, including microwaves, thermal, uh, x-ray, actinic rays. You can look at a UFO and get blisters on your eyeballs from staring at it too long. So um, I warn UFO hunters to be really cautious, you know. So there are a lot of ways that you can get burned by them. Uh, Electromagnetic fields can be so powerful that they can erase your memories and... uh, give you temporary or prolonged amnesia. It can affect your balance, your inner ear. When you work with your brother, trying to get him centered so that he could remember, if you will, Mm -hmm. what transpired, if you can share that with us? Uh, What transpired was that um, I made a trip to the West Coast where he had been living for several years, and we hadn't seen each other for many years. So we hadn't discussed that experience for a very long time over a decade and when I went out there this was in about 1991 perhaps 1990 he took me aside and he started talking to me about um, UFOs and something he'd learned and it was about uh, William Cooper and his initial revelations of MJ-12 and the Jason Society and uh, the UFO cover-up Behold the pale horses. Yes, exactly, when that was still in the manuscript form. So he made me aware of William Cooper. And um, subsequently, um, I I met Cooper and had long conversations with him about about things. Uh, So my brother and I uh, began a dialogue, and I started a series of questions. Uh, You know, Rogerian conversations, Carl Rogers, non-directive therapy, you know, let people speak, just Mm -hmm. go on, carry a, conduct a normal conversation and ask, uh, you know, normal stream of consciousness questions. And so this started to bring it back and we started to discuss it again. And it was then that he remembered that uh, they had come back in and carried him off and that he had fought relentlessly and they kept saying to him, open your eyes, open your eyes, and he wouldn't open his eyes but he fought with every muscle in his body against them until they could not overpower him, and they just finally gave up on him. But this left him 
with a very, very traumatic uh, chip on his shoulder, you might say. Sure. You know what I mean? Like being touched, being pushed, being forced to do anything, being told. And uh, it, many of the times that the outrage was uh, expressed physically. And until this, um, this event occurred where he was able to recall all of it, uh, that continued to be kind of a reflexive behavior, anger, rage, you know, easily pushed buttons. So many people who have this propensity for rage or anger, instantaneous feelings of hatred and need to express it violently, may actually be people who are using that, that immediate event as uh, an outlet for this unconscious, unconsciously held outrage or grief or anxiety or fear. And that's, uh, that's something that has to be drawn up. It wells up. It, it actually wells up physically in a person first with the feelings, but they don't have any words for the, for the feelings or understanding of it until the screen memory, the psychic buffers, have uh, been dropped enough to allow oneself to recall an experience of that kind of uh, magnitude, trauma, bliss. It can also be bliss. You know, uh, this is a, this is an event that is basically it's based in your brain and an influence that acts directly in the human brain uh, and can interfere even with its perceptions. You know, the, the mind scan, as Dr. David Jacobs calls it, the mind scan of the gray alien ET can invade your optic lobe and superimpose uh, images to mask itself so that you don't see an alien gray standing there. You know, you might right. see an owl or create some facsimile of it and it takes uh, quite a lot of personal mind control to be able to understand what are your real perceptions and when perceptions are being imposed upon you and your own faculties of senses of perception are being uh, so you were more or less regressing your brother in your own way yes but not in a hypnotic uh fashion which is that's it's interesting you said that because when you hear regression you almost always hear hypnosis yes you see? it's a hypnotic regression but the fact is just as you have uh, very insightfully noted yeah regression can be conscious and it doesn't have to be imposed or um affected affected uh using hypnosis it requires a kind of uh courage and a cooperation on the per on the person's part to venture there and to to keep the dialogue going and continue the the uh investigation i suppose is what we would call it you have to go out there again there and face up and ask and that's my i have a skill for that i have skill for asking the simple question um and it's very difficult to describe it. I'm sure it has to do something with empathy or my ability to to feel another person, you know, in the sense of my, my feeling body, not touching somebody, but just you stand in somebody else's environment and you calm yourself and clear your own mind and, you know, wash out your own emotions. The other person's radiation, emanations, 
they, they move through you and you can feel what they feel. And that's my skill. I can feel what they are feeling, but I do not know necessarily what it is that is creating that feeling. But my intuition sometimes sidetracks and will ask a simple question and it will create the, the avenue for their self-expression. Well, I can tell the way you talk it is a very soothing manner, and I'm sure the listeners can can feel that that by listening to you, uh, one feels calm in a way to be able to talk. And I guess this requires changing to a different mental state or, or state of consciousness to be able to open up to what you're asking. Yes, it is, and that's what I mean about it requiring a certain kind of personal courage to to engage in, in this kind of dialogue. Because, you know, this kind of dialogue uh, rarely occurs now because our minds have been affected by political speech where they speak in triplets, uh, they have very concise phrases. Uh, the problem of attention deficits in children is that they're exposed to this kind of disjointed use of language in media, in radio, in advertising that has basically destructured their verbal and neurolinguistic skills mm -hmm. hampered them and uh, they don't know how to maintain concentration for longer than five seconds or to think about one topic or one complete sentence that is correctly structured using conjunctions and and adverbs and uh, all the parts of speech you know the phraseology yes. that we learned as, as we were growing up so um, it's, people sometimes find it frightening to engage in a very ongoing, direct conversation that stays on one topic, and they can't side, you know, and you can't sidetrack and um, deflect or deviate. So, it's all the multitasking that we're accustomed to lately. So yeah. many things at the same time. But you know, uh, multitasking can be useful to help you understand the the various capacities of your mind. So in, in uh, the Tai Chi training, there's this kind of uh, ongoing dialogue in the training in analysis of movement, mechanics, etc. But at the same time, physically, you have to keep doing the, the, the sport. I'll call it the sport because mm -hmm. I've developed a series of sports applications of Tai Chi Chuan. Excuse me, I'm taking a sip here. Oh, sure. Um, I've developed uh, several sports that are outgrowths of Tai Chi Chuan and a certain philosophy that I learned from Herman Hesse's book, Magister Ludi, called The Glass Bead Game, at the same time that I started learning Tai Chi, around 72, 73. I came across this book called The Glass Bead Game, which described a system of education where the education was imparted and transmitted by learning this game called The Glass Bead Game. And the Magister Ludi of the title is the teacher of the games. It was like the master level game player. Mm -hmm. But not mind games like we use the word in our vocabulary. It was just very high level games like chess, you would say. You know, that, that kind of concept. But the game was physical and involved these glass spheres that were then repatterned and exchanged and passed and tossed or whatever, never explicitly described, but ex describing how the game itself incorporated the science, the knowledge, the mathematics, the uh, 
um, the poetry, the music, all of this was encompassed in this game that was played with the glass beads. And in the course of the next mm, three years, these two seeds, Tai Chi movement and um, the concept of education of the glass bead game, uh, coalesced. And in 1975, a friend of mine uh, from high school and I met and had a birthday party. And he came over and he gave me three juggling balls. And he told me, I'm going to, my gift to you is I'm going to teach you how to juggle. So he basically, he taught me the basic juggling pattern with three balls, which I found very fun to a point, but then very boring. And then I studied juggling somewhat. And I found that boring, like marching, wrote. And at the same time, I was developing martial arts. So I started to conceive of the balls as objects that could harm you, damage you, kill you, wound you, injure you or just make you look silly. And evading the ball and receiving the ball in one motion without stopping it uh, and returning it in an unbroken motion became a goal. And from that I developed a sport called Thunderball, which imparts to you natural movement. So I developed Thunderball and I developed um, soccer, played with two or three balls at the same time. So we used the legwork and we kicked the soccer balls and that represents something that could hurt you and you use your arms and legs to, to deflect or evade. And double and triple disc frisbee. Now this is a real flying saucer sport. Right. But coincidentally, frisbees and flying saucers came to Earth in the very same year. Is 19- that right? Yes, sir. This, and I don't find this to be just like a really like a weird coincidence. I, I feel that the whole thing's associated. And it was, the crash was uh, reported in Roswell, July 1947. And that fall at Yale, uh, some undergrads were tossing aluminum pie plates that were made by the Frisbee Pie Company that provided them to the, to the lunchroom in, in, at Yale. Mm-hmm. And that's how Frisbee got started. So there's this direct lineage or uh, relationship to me in my mind, between frisbees and flying saucers. So I developed this sport called Martian Double Disc Frisbee, in which we take two frisbees, one, one inside the other, throw them as one, and then uh, they split in midair, and you have to catch them either with two hands or two with one hand. And I have students and friends, and I myself can catch three with one hand at one time. So it's quite an invigorating sport, and it's all part of this uh, Tai Chi process to return uh, athleticism and correct form and grace to the human body, and it has its uses in uh, recovering from injury, uh, preventing injury. I have, I have quite an adventurous, I've had quite an adventurous life in New York, and Tai Chi's pulled me out of the, out of the the jaws of death many times. Well, speaking of uh, flying saucers, and obviously you're such an accomplished person, uh, pilot, uh, researcher, uh, editor for a, for, for a very reputable magazine, why do you think ufology is so important? There are many reasons. Some of them are um, philosophical, others are political, others are economic. And philosophically, it's important to me because it shows, in a sense, that the dead end 
the dead-end street of uh, evolutionary theory and the dead science of modern times, which threatens the very existence of the world, either through nuclear holocaust or environmental uh, catastrophe, uh, that there may be an alternate way of transcending this kind of destructive science that we've been practicing, particularly for the last 60 or 70 years, which we called the atomic age. Mm-hmm. And then politically, and again, pol- politics and philosophy you know, are, are related. Politically, it would alter um, the, the whole scheme of things to acknowledge that there is another life form or other life forms or higher intelligences. And this is also politically the reason that UFO knowledge is quashed or UFO reality is denied and suppressed. Um, Because one of the things that, one of the cornerstones of the modern world is called science. It's a religion that has established itself as a religion without a god except man's intellect itself. And so has placed itself at the pinnacle of creation and the pinnacle of human evolution. And all of a sudden, out of the skies, comes this phenomenon which betrays the existence of somebody a lot smarter and a lot older. And that is a threat to that cornerstone that we call civilization. And what I've just said to you is not Robert Morningstar's idea. This is what is said in the Brookings Institute white paper, the the finding, uh, 1967, on the peaceful uses of outer space, which NASA commissioned, asking the Brookings Institution to figure out a plan for uh, the contingency of encountering intelligent life in outer space. And it was the Brookings Institution paper which kind of uh, institutionalized denial of UFO existence, primarily to protect scientists and science itself, as well as religion. And what they said was that if uh, a higher intelligence uh, were encountered in space, it would be best not to tell mankind about it, because it would disrupt science and thereby disrupt economics, that the common people would be very likely to make a very quick adjustment to the idea. But the people who had the greatest vested interest in the status quo as far as power and status and uh, authority would be the most threatened, including scientists, doctors, engineers, and politicians. And that scientists and engineers, when faced with the magnitude of the technology that they were facing and the idea that they would have to work 200 years at their rate to get to where these entities manifestly already were, that they would be so depressed they might not even get out of bed to go to work the next morning. So that is the reason, one of the main reasons, that politics, governments have chosen to deny it, simply to keep science and its pedestal, evolutionary theory um, as the dominant explanation of how mankind came to the planet Earth and how he has thrived here. 
And the third, the other uh, element was its effect on religions, because religions are kind of a glue that hold societies together, and that the manifestation of uh, UFO entities, higher intelligences, and, and the relationship of those entities to our sacred writings, for example, having to deal with the idea that the angels and the demons of, of the Bible were actually different races of extraterrestrials would be very disruptive to, um, to uh, Western religions. But they did cite the Buddhists as the most threatened of, uh, of the religions. The most threatened? Yeah, they used them as an example. They didn't talk about Christians uh, freaking out or Western uh, Presbyterians. They talked about the Buddhists, that the Buddhist religion in particular, with all its many gods, you know, and all its many deities. And, right. Uh, they might be the ones that would be just uh, more culture-shocked than any you other. You know, it's co- coincidental that I had more or less exactly this conversation with Robert Morningsky. We were talking about, yes, and uh, we were talking about how it is the height of arrogance for us to believe that we are, let's use the term, highest in the food chain. And we are not prepared as a society, as, as the populace, to be downgraded, to understand that we are not as developed as other civilizations outside of our planet. And who would you look to, up to If all of a sudden you come in contact with a civilization that is 10,000 years ahead of us, that has evolved to the point of being able to uh, transcend and move interdimensionally uh, through other galaxies, come here, why would you look up to, to the, let me use the word very generally, the establishment? And that goes into governments, that goes into religion. Who would look up to those when we can actually listen to a more advanced being? Can you elaborate on that? Well, that was what I was saying about um, the government's uh, predicament. Because, as I've said in other programs, the presence of UFOs in our airspace demonstrates that the, uh, the myth of the omnipotence of the United States government. If the United States government, the United States Air Force, cannot control our own airspaces, and UFOs descend nightly, and with impunity into the Midwest, the central states. They're all over. I've seen them in New York. Uh, if they can control their own airspace, how much control do they really have over world affairs? Exactly. You see? It's, so it belies the myth of the omnipotence and omniscience of governments. I don't know, you know, people like, oh, let the government tell us, let the government tell us. But, you know, I don't think the government guys are that much smarter than the people outside the government, you know, and um, the bureaucracy kind of breeds a certain kind of uh, conformist type of person that just wants to collect his check and go home and don't want to be bothered. This is not part of my desk, you know, and that only perpetuates kind of incompetency and occultness, occultation of uh, information in government, a hidden government. So I'm a very big believer in freedom of information, and that's one of the, my my cornerstones. Is that you know you're not living in a democracy if somebody else controls your information. Yes. And it's your responsibility primarily to dig it out. You know, if you just want to vegetate in front of a television set and either choose Fox News as your, you know, be all and end all source, or or CNN, you know, these two antipodes 
The uh, mediopoly. Yeah, the mediocracy, I call it. Also you know, did. like democracy, mediocracy. Yes. And yes. Um, manipulation of public opinion and emotion, you know, inflaming emotions, turning up the heat and getting all these things. These are all distractions. The real news is not happening there. And uh, you have to, uh, if you're lucky enough to be on the Internet, you have the ability to uh, explore information from many sources. For many years, one of my favorite uh, channels was NWI News World International, which gave you the news from every capital city as they reported it to their constituency. And from that, I was able to glean what was really happening because each one altered it a little bit. But in the, in, in the overlay of all the information, you could extract a clearer picture of, of what was going on. And after the 2000 election, the loss, uh, Al Gore bought it and it was taken off our, our channels here. It was Cana basically a Canadian broadcast, uh, broadcasting company. Al Gore bought it and it was removed? It was removed. I used to get it here in New York City and as part of my package and it was removed uh, and made to be a subscription new service. Oh, so it's still operational, oh, it's still but operational. it's yeah, a subscription. Okay. Yeah. Now, let me ask you a question. Disclosure by government, mm -hmm. isn't that admitting impotence to the UFO phenomenon? Well, yeah, it's also admitting lying for 60 years. So what well, that's true, too, but, but if the government discloses and say, yes, they're here and there's nothing we can do about it, isn't that the reason why the secrecy continues? Because it's better to deny their existence so that we can continue saying, yep, they don't exist, as opposed to, yes, they're here and there's nothing we can do about it. Yes, that's true, but there's also the other possibility of what they wouldn't want to admit, which would be, Yes, they're here, and we knew they were here back in 1950, and in 1954 we made communication with them, and we made an agreement that uh, they could, uh, they could, um, they could uh, take 50,000 50, people a year, and uh, maybe uh, 15,000 head of cattle, and that they could work out of the four corners and have underground bases. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That'd be a tough one to sell too. The basic one they, they uh, seem to be working on would be to say, yes, they're here, and it seems that they're, they don't want to have overt contact. They're observing us as we would observe other developing uh, civilizations and try not to interfere, but we don't, we don't feel that they are a threat to the government. And if you read the, the, the papers of the 1950s, you know, like the Durant Report, that's what the Robertson Panel Report is called in the CIA, the Durant mm -hmm. Report. It's basically worried about the U.S. government, you know? It doesn't say UFOs do not pose a threat to the American people. It says UFOs do not pose a threat to the United States government, which is a slightly different thing. And so they could go on to say that it doesn't pose a threat to national security because their definition of national security is the continuation of government. And as long as they don't interfere in the process that we call the continuation of government, it's not a threat to national security as they understand national security. But to people who are being abducted or tampered with or whose DNA is being used to uh, either perpetuate the race of the greys or create uh, hybrids uh, or some other 
And I think concoction. that's the hottest, the, the hottest potato of all the, the A word, the abductions. Mm-hmm. If, let's say, President Obama, there's a miracle and he decides to disclose November 27th, mm-hmm. the day after Thanksgiving. And by the way, there's some rumors out there that this may happen. Mm-hmm. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. But if that happens, would an amnesty if he can, he can say, listen, we have known for a while, but for national security reasons, we couldn't tell you. And the only way we could say it is if we can give amnesty to all those people who have been involved. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, when the president or the panel is asked, so, Mr. President, tell us about how we're allowing people to be abducted against their will. How would they handle that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've heard similar rumors, and... Um they must have a contingency plan for the day when that happens. I mean, that has to have been in in the compendium of uh, protocols uh, a long Absolutely. time ago. You know, so just choosing who is the right person to to pull the rabbit out of the hat is, uh, I guess, the the main concern. And whether the public mind, the national mindset, has been prepared well enough for it not to suffer the culture shock that was foreseen in the 1940s and 50s because of the War of the World Syndrome. Mm-hmm. So, as I said before, uh, you know, in other programs, in 1966, I saw Frank Edwards on television in New York on the Alan Burke Show discussing a 49-year plan by the CIA. You know, seven times seven, he said, seven plans, seven years uh, each and seven phases of the plan to introduce the uh, UFO or the alien presence reality to the American people. And he described uh, the, the changes in films that we would see. At that time, it was only monsters from outer space and horrible things that wanted to destroy the human race. He foretold the coming of films like Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, or E.T., showing a more humane, benevolent uh, picture mm-hmm. of uh, aliens who who are not the monsters from outer space, in preparation for this 49-year plan. So, um, it's about time, you know. And uh, the background I have here with the events in New York, as far as disclosure are concerned, uh, the UN meetings that happened um, last year, and the uh, whole series of events that have unfolded the rapidity with which uh, UFOs have become mainstream on CNN, Larry King Live in particular, and on Fox News, uh, regular reporting. And again, the giggling is down. I don't know if you've noticed in the last (laughs) year, the giggle level I don't mean to interrupt you. you (laughs) I don't mean to interrupt. Let me just interrupt for a second, if I might. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I almost mentioned this in almost every show. The giggle factor has gone down significantly, don't right. you think? Absolutely. And uh, now Larry tells the skeptics to shut down, you know? Yes. You know, he got a little <laughs> upset with Michael Shermer uh, when one of those uh, late Skeptic magazine shows, you know, and he said, oh, oh, quiet down, Michael, you know? So uh, he's gone from a skeptic to a supporter, as you can see. You know, it's interesting if you have the videotapes or they're on the YouTube to study Larry King's himself, his personality change from two years ago or three years ago interviewing somebody on UFOs and watch what happened in after January in the Stevensville uh, 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 UFO flap and having... Angela, Angela Joyner on uh, on the show yes. several times, and you know those the, the the real folk, you know the real Americans, 
they walk the streets of Stephenville and see what they see and tell what they tell uh, they saw, you know. I think that had an effect on him. And I had uh, James Fox on the show a, a few weeks ago, and he was telling me of the story when he was there with former Arizona governor, Fife Symington. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the break, uh, Larry King approached both of them and said, guys, this is real, isn't it? Almost as a lightning struck for the first time. Right. And he now continues to open up to this. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up Five Symington and James Fox. I was there at that conference in Washington, and uh, I met uh, Five Symington and had a chance to interview him and discuss the event. And I understand perfectly his concern of panic. And I yes. think it was now in retrospect, everyone was angry, but in retrospect, I think, you know, that was kind of a stroke of genius to use humor to kind of uh, disarm the, the panic and the anxiety that was building. Well, the question I, uh, the but, question I would have for for him would be, Mr. Symington, uh, Governor, did you get a phone call to do what you did, or was that something you voluntarily did, bringing that fake alien out? Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a that's a question I didn't get to ask, but you know, he did tell me that he, it flew right over his head, and he said this thing was so big, Robert, you could take a New York Times and stretch it out at arm's length over your head. New York Times mm -hmm. is a pretty wide, long newspaper, you know? He yes. said you could stretch it out with your arm straight over your head, and the thing was bigger than that. So and um, so, I guess that he's come around, and people are, are uh, relieving themselves of the fear of government retribution and reprisal, which is, I think, one of the main concerns of, of all these witnesses. So uh, I do believe, uh, as you do, that uh, an amnesty for people who have uh, participated in the cover-up of UFOs uh, would be appropriate as long as they hadn't participated in the assassination or the killing of of other good or better people for that right. reason, you know? I mean, there is a limit to how much, you know, leniency or, or um, you know... And the strange thing is... I'm listening to, to, to multiple sources, and I know, for example, I had Dr. Edgar Mitchell a few weeks ago. He has his opinion, which never changes. But then you have Buzz Aldrin. First, years ago, he would say, yes, we'd be, we, we were followed. All of a sudden, no, I never said that. Uh, I never saw anything. Then today, I saw a video from him on C-SPAN, where he's actually saying that he saw images of what looks to be mm, structures, on the moon of Mars. So he changes from yes to no to yes. What's happening? Uh, did he say he saw structures on the moon, or did he say he saw structures on the moons of Mars? I guess that's what... He, he, saw, he saw images coming from NASA yes. where there are structures that are definitely not natural. Right. On Mars or the moon? Yeah, on the moon? Uh, Mars. On Mars. But on the moons of Mars. On the moons of Mars. Um, I know them pretty well myself. Um, Demos and Phobos, yes. and uh, I would tend to agree, um, especially Phobos. Phobos is a very interesting object, and way back in the 1970s, a uh, Russian astronomer and physicist uh, proposed that they weren't made of, uh, of Mars, Martian stuff. And that, artificial. Yeah, that they were artificial, and it's very interesting. Uh, I haven't 
uh, discuss this with anyone else, but in the high-resolution uh, photos uh, of Phobos and close-ups of the impact crater, Stukni, there does seem to be some scoring and geometric uh, lines and forms that uh, come off the side uh, uh, of the of the of the moon that look extremely uh, geometric and machined. You know, kind of like uh, girder welding. Uh, old technology, I would call it. Take a close look at it. You can get them at the NASA website. Type in Phobos, and you'll see some very, very interesting stuff. I think that's what he may be speaking about if he said the moons are Mars. And also, let's talk about Phobos and the disappearance of Phobos II, the Russian probe. Uh, please do. Uh, the Russian probe went up there in 1988 and was taking some fine pictures of the surface and all of a sudden it took pictures of something dark and elliptical on the surface of Mars and then uh, something hit it and it tumbled and it took one more picture of Phobos and a long, long object right near nearby which I've analyzed uh, with uh, it enhanced computer technology of the 21st century, which uh, looks to be a cylindrically shaped, uh, what you and I in proportion would call pencil-thin object. Mm -hmm. And in uh, the high-resolution photos I've studied of it, it looks like antennae um, extending out from it. So that was lost, and there were several other probes that went to Mars at that period of time that were lost. But the Phobos II loss is really a fascinating uh, ex uh, account. What do you think happened to those probes? Well, the probe, the only one that I could, I'll speak to is Phobos II, the Russian probe. Yes. And obviously there was a collision with something because they said that it, it tumbled out of its orbit and they lost control of it. And it did take a photograph of something rising up above the lunar surface, uh, approaching it, and as if it was bumped and tipped. And one more photo of it as it was tumbling out of control uh, caught two objects, the moon uh, Phobos, a part of the moon Phobos, and a part of something else nearby. So I think that Did that's... you see? Did you see those images? Yes. They're available on the Internet. If you type in Phobos 2, you can uh, find some of them yourself. There's well, speaking of, of the uh, uh, the moon, as you know, Robert, there are two camps mm -hmm. as it relates to the moon. And this is before we take our, our one and only break. I want to ask you this question. There are two camps as it relates to the moon. There are two those who believe we went and those who believe we did not go. Did we really go to the moon? And if so, why are some of the photos faked or altered? Well, I believe that we did go. I have studied the photos for years and years, and yes, they are altered, but they are altered not to fake a moon landing, but to hide what we found there. That's my, yes. my explanation. Uh, to occult it, I used that word before, you know, to, to occult it, to hide it from public view. And uh, there's so many. I mean, it, started, it, started, it goes back to the lunar orbiter period, which was the last open, open press conference uh, NASA uh, press conference that they had with no delay of signal. You know, the stuff was coming in and everybody was seeing it. And they're the ones that, that uh, discussed uh, towers on the moon, you know. 
They're the ones that they're the ones that name the face on Mars the face on Mars, you know? Mm-hmm. So um the stuff that comes out of NASA is very, very highly filtered, but there are ways of getting the real the real McCoy. One of them is uh buying some of their products, uh certain lines of their products if you order them, you know, things slip through. The other one is uh drilling down into the databases of NASA and digging into all kinds of archives that the general public doesn't know about and uh, you really have to navigate to to get them but they're also there and that's where I found some photos or recent releases under freedom of information that are markedly different than the ones that were released let's say 20 years ago which show as people have said you know black magic marker occulting details of a film for example here's a, here's a simple one why were there no picture where why were there no stars in so many of those early nasa pictures you know in the 80s 70s 80s 90s you'd see all these pictures and you wouldn't see the stars and the stars shine even more brightly on the moon than they they shine on earth because there's no atmosphere to interfere, no atmosphere you know right they also don't move you know, they don't move like like they move on on planet Earth uh, over a period of time. They stay in place. It's really tiny, tiny movements because of uh, the rotation of the moon. The rotation around of the moon, right? Yeah. So that was one of the things that one of the astronauts, actually um, Buzz Aldrin, wrote about: the being on the moon and coming out and seeing the stars still in the same place. And you go and you work for hours, and you look up, and they're still in the same place. You know, they get a sense that time hasn't passed at all. It's supposed to the night passing by because you see the northern constellations spinning around Polaris. So it's a very, very uh, um, unusual environment. And you, why, why would you, why would you uh, take out all the stars? I'll tell you why. Well, before you say that, okay. before you say that, sure. the debunkers say that yes, there's no atmosphere, but because there's no atmosphere, the sun shines so bright that you can't see the stars. That's what the debunkers say. That's what some would would say, but <clears throat> the fact is that those cameras are pointed skyward in a lot of them and uh very li- and at times when the when the sun isn't shining uh so brightly. And as a result, I say that in recent uh months, recent years, I have found modern uh releases of those photographs that do show the stars. So here's why. If a photograph showed all those constellations and there were anomalous lights within that picture, a good astronomer could say, Hey, you know, here are the stars of the the head of Taurus and Aldebaran and the Pleiades and hey, what's that there? What's that bright object? What are those nine bright objects there? So by eradicating all the stars, you you eliminate that possibility, and that possibility is more than a possibility, because many people in NASA have come forth saying that uh, they were forced to alter um, photographs of uh, lunar phenomena that they didn't want the public to see. Go into the Clementine archive. You can still go. You go over by Moltke Crater and look around there, and you'll find this big black rectangle of an area that's completely devoid of any information. They're still blocking uh, specific regions of the moon. 
But I can see why they would be blocking the structures for obvious reasons, to, yeah. not to admit that another civilization is there or was there. Right. But why blocking the stars? What's, what's the purpose well, of I that? Well, as I say, if, if uh, a UFO was caught in camera, in a, in a photograph, and they compared that photograph and the constellations um, that are supposed to be there, and this extra set of lights is in there, that could be argued mm. as proof of UFOs, you see? Because mm-hmm. if you took a picture of the constellation, as I said, Orion, you take a picture of the sky of Orion and Taurus and that group of stars, you know what's supposed to be there. And if something is there that isn't supposed to be there, any even amateur astronomer would say, hey, what's this? This is not a star. Or this is not a group of stars. It's not on the charts. What is that? UFOs. And there are quite a lot of those photos there. I'm telling you. You just have to explore the archives and uh, start to dig in. And I'll be releasing some photographs of that nature in UFO Digest very soon. I wanted to wait for all the hoopla to die down after this uh, anniversary. 40th anniversary, you know? Yeah. And then come out with something that people will be ready for. Let me ask you a question and we'll get the response on the other side of the break. Okay. Uh, why is it taking so long to return to the moon? An answer on the way back. Robert, what's your website? Uh, UFODigest.com, I believe, is one of them. Right. How do we get in touch with your work? Um, that, or if you're interested in my work on the JFK assassination, you go to JFK Research, one word, JFKResearch.com. And on the homepage, they have featured articles and they have archived my work on the uh, JFK Tippett body swap and the alteration of the Zapruder film. As I mentioned, I studied Gestalt psychology, which is the psychology of human perception and how humans form an idea from visual information. And uh, that's how I discovered that uh, the Zapruder film was altered, radically altered. And we'll be discussing the Zapruder film, JFK, and so many other aspects, ETs, the moon, Mars, and much more. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Robert Morningstar. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Robert Morningsky, and you are listening to The Veritas Show.